welcome. Thank you for listening. We're currently working our way through the book of Joshua, celebrating the God who keeps every promise he has ever made. If you're in the Milwaukee area and you're looking for a church home, we'd love to meet you. You can connect with us more through our website, harvestcommunity.org. The Israelites, however, were unfaithful regarding the things set apart for destruction. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took somewhat of what was set apart, and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and scout the land. So the men went up and scouted Ai. After returning to Joshua, they reported to him, don't send all the people, but send about 2,000 or 3,000 men to attack Ai. Since the people of Ai are so few, don't wear out all our people there. So about 3,000 men went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of them and chased them from outside the city gate to the quarries, striking them down on the descent. As a result, the people lost heart. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord until evening, as did the elders of Israel. They all put dust on their heads. O Lord God, Joshua said, why did you ever bring these people across the Jordan to hand us over to the Amorites for our destruction? If only we had been content to remain on the other side of the Jordan. What can I say, Lord, now that Israel has turned its back and run from its enemies? When the Canaanites and all who live in the land hear about this, they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. Then what will you do about your great name? The Lord then said to Joshua, stand up. Why have you fallen face down? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant that I appointed for them. They have taken some of what was set apart. They have stolen, deceived, and put those things with their own belongings. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They will turn their backs and run from their enemies because they have been set apart for destruction. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. Go and consecrate the people. Tell them to consecrate themselves for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. These are things that are set apart among you, Israel. You will not be able to stand against your enemies until you remove what is set apart. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe the Lord selects is to come forward clan by clan. The clan the Lord selects is to come forward family by family. The family the Lord selects is to come forward man by man. The one who is caught with the things set apart must be burned along with everything he has because he has violated the Lord's covenant and committed an outrage in Israel. Joshua got up early the next morning. He had Israel come forward tribe by tribe and the tribe of Judah was selected. He had the clans of Judah come forward and the Zeharite clan was selected. He has the Zeharite clan come forward 
by heads of families and the Zabdi was selected. He then had Zabdi's family come forward man by man and Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was selected. So Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel and make a confession to him. I urge you, tell me what you have done. Don't hide anything from me. Achan replied to Joshua, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful cloak from Babylon, five pounds of silver and a bar of gold weighing a pound and a quarter, I coveted them and took them. You can see for yourself, they are concealed in the ground inside my tent with the silver under the cloak. So Joshua sent messengers who ran to the tent and there was the cloak concealed in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from inside the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out in the Lord's presence. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the cloak, and the bar of gold, his sons and daughters, his ox, donkey, and sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them up to the valley of Achar. Joshua said, why have you brought us trouble? Today the Lord will bring you trouble. So all Israel stoned them to death. They burned their bodies, threw stones on them, and raised them over him a large pile of rocks that remains still today. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, that place is called the Valley of Achar still today. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Nice work. We've been in the book of Joshua for a couple of months now, and we'll be here for a while. We're going to take a short break for the Advent season, for the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day. We'll resume Joshua again, and we'll hopefully finish up in time for Lent as we prepare to celebrate Easter. So we have been in Joshua for a little while. You might be visiting with us this morning. So far, you have missed the great verses of be strong and courageous, and I will be with you wherever you go. You have missed the crossing of the Jordan. And last Sunday, you missed the victory at Jericho. And you have come just in time this morning to see Achan caught with theft and everyone pays a great price because of it. You know, this sermon will not make sense outside of our worship service so far, and we've really designed the service that way. This sermon on Achan and his sin makes no sense if we are not singing, holy, there is no one like you, there is none beside you, without the absolute holiness of God This sermon, this text is actually a bit disturbing, but in its context, it flows with the service because our God is holy. He's always existed before anything existed. God existed and he has existed in perfection, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit And God exists to this day, holy, worshiped in heaven. In fact, right now, as we gather here, 
there is a multitude in heaven before the very throne of God. And you know how they're being led in worship? It begins with holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever they say this, there's people on 24 thrones, the 24 elders, and they fall down before the throne and they cast their crowns before the throne. And they say, worthy are you to receive this worship. This is worship. It begins with a holy God. And we're glad our children are in the service this morning. As Jay said, this is intentional. Our kids pick up everything. My wife runs an in-home daycare. She has her whole marriage. And so we always get to meet different families from the community. And right now we have this brilliant two-year-old who hears everything. We mentioned my one son, Anno's teacher the other day, and she spouted out the name of that teacher. How did she get that? She's just there as a, a, a sponge in the kitchen as the kids are getting ready and going off to school and all kids are that way. And the best way for them to learn who our God is and how he is worshiped is to join us here in the service, just to watch their parents sing, to watch adults stand up and confess sin before God to, in the confession of sin, to go to the elements of communion to the bread and cup and to say mom or dad or grandma or whoever brought them What's that? What does that mean? There's really no better way. Uh, so thank you. And I affirm what Jay said. There's going to be kids with a cough. There's going to be kids talking. There's going to be kids running out to go to the bathroom three times. That's perfectly fine. I have four of them myself. And uh, this is normal. So it's just a big living room here this morning. The sin of Achan comes in chapter seven of Joshua in the sin of Achan is really the shot heard round the world. The sin of Achan for Israel is really like this surprise attack on God's own people that really seems to awake a sleeping giant, as it were. This one thing that Achan did had consequences, not just for Achan and his family, but an entire nation. And it really caught them off guard. You see, to catch you up, we have watched um, as Moses passed away on the east side of the Jordan River, Joshua was called in Joshua 1 to lead God's people across the Jordan. And he was told to be strong and courageous. And they were told that everywhere their foot went, God would give them that place and that no one that they come up against would be able to stand against them. And then we saw last week as my friend David, who was visiting with us, preached the victory at the battle of Jericho. It wasn't Joshua's victory at all, was it? God was truly giving them every place they went. And so those walls that were around Jericho fell down and God gave them everything in the city. But last week, I don't know if you caught this, but in chapter six, verse 18, God gave them clear instructions. Last week at the victory of the battle of Jericho, God says in Joshua six, verse 18, but keep yourselves from the things set apart or you will be set apart for destruction. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. For all the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are dedicated to the Lord and must go into 
the Lord's treasury. So very specifically, God says, I'm going to give you Jericho. The walls are going to fall down and you will have victory in this city. But the riches that are in the city all belong to the Lord and will go into the treasury. Make sure you don't take any of it. These are the things set apart. If you take any of the things set apart, you will be set apart for punishment. So God's word was very clear. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Israelites were unfaithful regarding this thing set apart for destruction because who? Achan. Achan took some of what was set apart and the Lord's anger burned against the Israelites. It actually says Achan, and then it lists his family in layers. And then at the end, when Achan is investigated, it lists his family in layers. And when Achan is punished, we see his family there. And this is because this sin is not limited to Achan, but this sin affects Achan and everyone around Achan. This is the nature of sin. And so at the very top, we see God's anger God's wrath, his justifiable reaction, because he's a holy, perfect God. He dwells in light and in him, there is no darkness at all. And so even one sin through one sin entering through Achan, our holy God is apart. He's set apart from that sin because he's holy. And Achan brings this sin into the camp of the nation of Israel. Now, 7 verse 1, if you're looking at your Bible, is really a reader's advantage, so to speak. This is something we get to see that everyone in the story doesn't know so far. Right now, we know that Achan took items from Jericho and hid them under his tent, but Joshua doesn't know this. The people don't know this. So in verse 2, we see a surprising defeat. Joshua is in Jericho with his men and they look to what the next town is and it's Ai. And they say, let's continue this victory march. They get a little self-confident and they say, well, you know, we don't need to send everyone out there. You remember the numbers before was like 40,000 just from two and a half tribes, like 40,000 fighting men crossing the Jordan just from two and a half tribes. Well, now they say, just send two or three thousand post Jericho after Jericho kind of walking in this victory basking in the glory of this big win just send two to three thousand because AI is not that big and so they send three three thousand men go to AI and as soon as they get there they're not only defeated there they're chased out of there before the war even starts and as they come back they lose 36 fighting men out of that 3,000, which is gracious and, 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 and minimal compared to what could have happened. But that's what happens in verses two through five. And we see here that there is a uh, self-confidence actually. This isn't the main point of the text, but, but it is here. There's a self-confidence as they're like, let's just send two to, we're doing so well. Let's send two to 3,000. We don't need everybody. Let's not wear everybody out. Let's let other people rest for future battles. Let's just send two to three out. And so you see that self-confidence is a lack of faith too, right? It was, it was a lack of faith when the 10 spies 
originally didn't want to go into Canaan and they thought the giants in the land were too big. That was a lack of faith, but it's also a lack of faith to say, I, I, we only need to send two to 3,000 in. Why? What, what do both imply? Both imply in some way, I've got this. In some way, I've got this. Either I don't have this because I'm not strong enough or I've got this because I am strong enough. But as we've seen throughout Joshua, the battle has nothing to do with people. The battle belongs to the Lord and he's the one. It's his presence, God's presence who brings victory. I've seen this in my own life as God has brought me to some lowest points, whether it's in health or mental health or relationships or struggles, they're in absolute deepest dependence upon God is a sweetness that I wouldn't trade for anything. God's desire isn't for you to be overly self-confident and victorious. God's desire is for you to be absolutely, utterly dependent on him so that he can show you that he alone is victorious. And the people were losing sight of this. When Joshua sees the defeat in verses six through nine, Joshua cries out in despair. Joshua almost reminds us of the Israelites. If you look down at the text in verses six through nine, why did you even bring us across the Jordan? We should have been content to stay over there on the other side where it was peaceful. Do you remember when the people of Israel left Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea? And like, as soon as they cross the Red Sea and they get to the other side, something happens. At first, it might have been hunger. Or where are we going to get water? Well, we should have stayed back in Egypt. In Numbers 14, the 10 spies bring a bad report and say, we can't go into the promised land. The people immediately panic. Like, why did you even bring us out here? We were better there. Here, it almost seems like Joshua in his despair says, Lord, now that we are suffering defeat, what is going to happen to us? You should have just left us on the other side of the Jordan. But in Joshua's despair, there is something that sets him apart as a leader apart from the grumbling people of Israel recorded in the books of Exodus and Numbers. And that is this, Joshua appeals to the name of the Lord. Look at verse nine. Then what will you do about your great name? Joshua is invoking something so powerful here. You see all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter four, verse 26, we hear, people began calling upon the name of the Lord. In Exodus chapter three, verses 14 through 15, when God calls Moses, how does he call and empower Moses? He tells them who he is, his name, I am. All you have to do is go to the middle of your Bible to the Psalms and the Psalms are full of your great name. This is who God is in his character, his reputation for past acts, who he still is and who he will always be. This is God's fame. This is God's renown going throughout all of the earth. Joshua gets the perspective back on track here. And he says, God, what will you do? You do for your great name. Do you see the turn as opposed to the um, Jericho was all about God's victory, but then quickly after it's self-confidence, let's just send 
two to 3,000 because we've got this. When they meet defeat, Joshua cries out to the Lord. And though he's in despair as a singular leader leading this entire nation, thinking, are we just going to encounter more and more defeat? He says, what will you do? Because victory belongs to you and victory is about you. Victory is sourced in God and victory is for God. So Joshua appeals to God's great name. The next section, verses 10 through 15, God in response to this lets Joshua in on the actual problem. I call this the confrontation, but this is, this is really God confronting Joshua with what's happening. Starting in verse 10, the Lord Joshua was bowed with his face to the ground in mourning and despair. He says, stand up. Israel has sinned. They violated my covenant that I appointed for them. And he just gets right to the point. They've taken some of those things that were set apart. They've taken some of those things that were set apart. They've stolen and deceived and put those things with their own belonging. And the most important verse, chapter seven's long. 26 verses. Just ask Jay. <laughs> it all comes down to this. Verse 12, the second half. I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. I want you to zoom in, zoom in on this verse. It's, it's, it's the emphasis of the entire passage. The whole chapter is explained with this verse. Do you know how important God's presence has been so far? Joshua was like, who am I to lead these people after the great and mighty Moses has passed away. And God says, I will be with you. So Joshua steps forward in confidence. Well, where will we go? Everywhere you go, I'll be with you. And I'll give you those places. What about the people that we will come up against? Don't worry about them. No one will be able to stand against you because I will be with you. God's presence in the book of Joshua equals victory. But in the face of sin, it means absence. There is nothing worse that could happen here. There's nothing worse that could happen to the nation of Israel right now than the removal of God's presence. And so God says in verse 12, the second half, I will no longer be with you unless you remove from among you what is set apart. God's presence is the most important thing in this whole book. And God is a jealous God and will not dwell with sin. And God is jealous in this way because God wants his people to want all of him. God wants all of his people and God wants his people to want all of him. And the sin of Achan wasn't about this like robe or the silver coins or the gold bars. Okay. Achan went and saw this beautiful robe in Jericho. He saw silver coins, he saw gold bars, and he wanted those. But the sin, those weren't sinful in and of themselves. Achan was saying, I want these more than I want a relationship with God. God made a covenant relationship, and here's what a covenant means. It's like a promise. It's just a relationship. God says, I will be with you. And then they go into Jericho, they win this victory. 
But when you find these spoils of war, don't take them. What he's saying there is, when you win the battle, I won the battle. And when you win the battle, it's because I'm with you. And what is your prize for winning the battle? God says, it's me. God's presence is our reward. There is nothing greater than God could give us than his presence. But we are constantly tempted to want things over God. And this is when they become sin. How do you know something's sin in your life? It's when you can fill in the blank with, with if I just had this. I know I have God. I have a relationship with God. But if I could just... In anywhere on the spectrum, from a realistic need that some of us struggle with in the room that seems legitimate, all the way to something luxurious that nobody would think we need that some of us crave for. I mean, all the way down here, like, if I could just own my own home, I could finally rest and be satisfied all the way to, I have a huge home and I just need a boat bigger than my neighbor's boat. And everything in between becomes sin for us when it displaces faith and deep trust. What God is trying to say to Israel here is, I am with you and I am enough for you and I'm all you need. And so anytime you find yourself needing something, to get through a day, to get through a week, to pass through. That's when you know it's sin because God's presence is enough for you. And God is a jealous God. And so God is saying, you got to remove that stuff, Joshua, or I will be removed from you. And this sounds jealous, like in a bad way that we wouldn't like, but it's jealous in a a glorious way, because God's saying, I don't want you to have that stuff in your life and for you to depend on it more than me, because I just want you to depend on me alone. And that's, you know why that's so loving of God? Because he is completely overwhelmingly enough, but you'll never see that as long as you keep looking to other things. Does that make sense? As long as you put your trust in other things, you'll never know what it's like to fully trust the Lord and you'll never know the fullness of joy that you're actually looking for. It's so easy to see when we um, look in judgment on people who struggle with substance abuse and we, we can see the end from a distance and we can say, that thing you're looking for isn't working for you. It's only going to destroy you. But we give ourselves a pass on all of the justifiable things that we rely on every day. And nothing that is not God is engineered to work for us. Sin does not ultimately work. It's just not engineered to. Anything you look to other than God will fail you. Even if you worship a better marriage and look to your spouse to be everything for you, your spouse will fail you. The only way your marriage will work is if you look to God and you're fully satisfied in him and your spouse looks to God and, and, and he or she is fully satisfied in him. And together as people who are both looking to God, you can be content and build up one another. 
We have so many justifiable addictions. We worship our kids in taking them to sports that they'll never be professionals at. We spend thousands of dollars taking our kids across the country thinking they're going to pitch in the major leagues or play in the NHL or play in the MLS if it's still around when they're older. And we think that we're giving all of our priority to our children and we're missing out on spiritual formation and being a part of a community of believers. And we're thinking I'm doing the right thing because I'm doing it for my kids. And God's saying anything Thing that is not me will fail. Then ultimately in worshiping our kids, we're failing our kids. Anything that is not of the Lord is engineered to fail. So the Lord tells Joshua, remove it or my presence will be removed. Now comes the investigation, which is long, but it's actually simple. Remember how he had layers to his family. The Lord instructs Joshua to call the layers of the family forward, layer by layer, showing that this thing affects the whole community. And Achan is found out in his sin. And in the tradition of Genesis chapter three, he admits his sin. He said, I looked. Do you remember when Eve admitted in Genesis three, six, like I looked at the fruit of the tree and it was good. Achan says, I looked. And this, this robe, David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, it all started with him saying, I looked, it was good to me. He admits that he then coveted breaking the 10th of 10 commandments in Exodus 20, 17. Don't covet, don't desire other people's stuff that's not yours. Again, the robe wasn't the sin. The silver and the gold wasn't the sin. It was wanting it all at the expense of God. That was the sin. Since the very beginning, folks, we've been desiring things that are not ours to have. We've been looking for other things to be God, and they've been failing us. And thus, we've even been failing one another. So Exodus 20 4 through 25 is the judgment that the sin affected the whole community. It was going to hold them back from the promised land. This sin, were it not rooted out, was going to keep them back from victory. It was going to keep them from the very presence of God. So the whole community comes together and expresses judgment upon Achan and everyone around him. And in the end, there's a new rock pile over Achan. Remember the rock pile that was a remembrance of God's great works at Camp Gilgal on the other side of the Jordan? Now there's a new rock pile remembering what happened to Achan. This is a reminder of what sin can do. Chapter seven, a sliver of light creeps through in a surprising way. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. And because of this, that place is still called the Valley of Trouble still today. But I want us to focus in on this. The Lord turned from his burning anger. The Lord instructed them to remove the sin at the cost of death. Sin was removed at the cost of death. And at that removal of sin at death, the anger of the Lord that was present in verse one is absent in 26. You taking notes in the journal, Joshua seven, verse one, the anger of the Lord enters. If this is a play, Verse 26, anger of the Lord exits stage left. And verse 26, because of the removal of the things and the punishment by death. In this passage, we have seen 
that God's presence is their true power and victory, but his presence is removed at sin. That one man's sin can infect the whole body. This morning, I want to bring out a few things to you in applying this text. First is the severity of sin. Folks, we never talk about sin. I had to send a couple texts about my sermon. One was this morning. I text myself some notes to add about my sermon. So that when I get to church, I see them. Like my Apple phone wants to autocorrect sin to sun and offers me like a sun emoji. <laughs> if that isn't, if that isn't a picture of our whole world, we're going to deal with, with sin. If, if, if you're, alone, you know what sin does. Like, you know from scripture that our God is holy and perfect and dwells in an unapproachable light. And you know the things you've been plagued with since you've been born. And we feel it and we want to deal with it. Some of us numb ourselves in various ways so we don't think about it. And, and many of us actually start relativizing or redefining sin so that's not really sin anymore. It's just like, struggles that we don't actually want to deal with and root out. But Joshua chapter seven teaches us the absolute devastating nature of sin. Dr. Davis, somebody I have uh, been reading uh, his work on this chapter this week says this, we Christians generally have such tame views of sin. Wrongly, we have no paranoia over this contagious power. Our problem is that we prefer the tolerance of men to the praise of God. Folks, as long as we want to keep auto-correcting sin to son, we will never appreciate the solution to our problem. If you don't want to understand the severity of sin, you will never understand the glorious solution to sin. And I'm going to show you that in our final minutes here this morning. Second, we see, the, uh, we see the connectedness, the spread of sin through the passage. Joshua 7 teaches that our sin is pervasive, that we can lie to ourselves and think it sits just with us, but it actually affects people right in our own home, and it eventually affects everybody in the community. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians says in chapter 5, we're a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough, speaking of immorality in the church that affected the whole church. This is why churches practice church discipline. When somebody's not willing to repent of a sin, they're removed from the membership of that church. This is what was driving our sacred assembly back in March. This church gathered in this room and we did something so unthinkable in our culture today. We stood up and we confessed sins to one another. We said, we as leaders, we as people, we as individuals have committed these sins and we celebrated communion together and the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. It was beautiful. One of the most powerful moments in 20 years of ministry that I've ever experienced. Actually, this week is the start of my 20th year in local church ministry. And I can say that that sacred assembly was outside of things I've seen in South Asia and house church planning movements, the most powerful thing I've ever seen. 
This morning, I want to take a minute to show you the solution. Because if you've been thinking, if this is how God deals with one sin from Achan, if a holy God is set apart from one of my sins, well, where do I stand this morning with all of my sins? And, and I want you to feel that weight. And to deal with it, we're going to go to Romans chapter 5. Let's go to Romans chapter 5. Paul writes this. So then just as through one sin or trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The law came along to multiply the sins, the trespasses, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through Christ righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord you that wrath of God that accompanies sin was dealt with in Romans chapter 3:25 God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed first John 2 verse 2 because Jesus is the peacemaker between us and God. Propitiation, big word for making peace. Remember, God was angry in his wrath at the sin of Achan because of Jesus. Jesus is the peacemaking, offering atonement for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Paul, exalting Christ in Colossians 2, 13 says, he made you alive with him and forgave us all. Say that word with me. All our trespasses, Jesus Christ on the cross, erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this about Jesus. The son is the radiance of this pure and holy God, the exact imprint of the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by the powerful word. Look at this sentence. After making purifications for your sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His work was done. Have you ever completed a project and you just felt good? I'm in, I work with people for a living, so I've been learning more and more I'm drawn to projects that have a beginning and an end point. They're really good for my mental health. So right now I'm into cutting and splitting wood. And at the end of the day, yesterday, my one son and I were able to look over our shoulder and see this wood pile. It's mostly maple, honey locust from my neighbor's tree. That's just look, you go in tired, sit down. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, ever since Achan sinned, when we saw this hopeless web of sin and despair going out through the world, people are wondering, forget what to do about my one sin. What do I do about all my sin? 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus who came and lived perfectly and kept every law, including the 10th of 10 commandments that Achan broke. He never did any of those things. 
He actually spent his whole life doing good things. And Jesus Christ, who is the holy God, hung on the cross with your name on his heart. And not only the one sin you committed, all the sins you've committed in the past, but all the sins you've committed today, all the sins you will commit before you meet the Lord. And Jesus hung with those sins on him. And just like through one person, the sin of Achan entered the nation of Israel, Jesus Christ hung on the cross and he took all your sins, all of it. And it was nailed to the cross with him. And before Jesus died, he said, it is finished. And through faith in Jesus Christ today, you can be forgiven of everything you've ever done and everything you ever will do so that God only looks at you with uninterrupted presence and victory, both now and forever. This is the glory of the solution. The dilemma is this morning that because we're unable to talk about the reality of sin, we're unable to celebrate the solution. Have you ever stood there while the band, the band's been sounding good and we get to Jesus paid it all, but you find yourself going, Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Is it 325 or noon today? What time is the game on? Have you ever felt that? That's because you can't celebrate that your debts have been paid if you really don't grasp the depths of your debt. So the worship band's going to come, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the Lord's table. This is for all Christians. We have people visiting us this morning. If you have a relationship with God, this is a time we just invite you to join. We practice open communion here at Harvest. Parents, what you do with your kids, they're going to ask you questions. It's totally up to you. Use this as a time to lean over and teach. But as we go to the Lord's table, I believe that there are two groups for sure in this room and obviously a spectrum. There, when I was talking about sin, there are some of you who feel so overwhelmed by the weight of your sin and you've never known freedom and forgiveness. And today is the day that you should receive free and full paid it all forgiveness. It, it would look like this as the elements begin to be passed. You would pray in your heart in faith to God, God, I cannot solve the problem of my sin, but Jesus did. And I believe he paid for my sin. God, because of Jesus, forgive me, come into my life and save me. And Christian, I want to talk to you just like I had to talk to myself this morning. We get so numb and comfortable and Jesus and his death on the cross just becomes this bit of theology, this part of scripture, this song. It's everything. Jesus and what he did for you is everything. You know the weight of sin that seems so heavy? Well, the glory of Jesus' free gift that reigns in righteousness greater than sin and death is life-giving and free and gives you a new identity. Let's come to the table and celebrate that together. Hold your elements and we'll partake in just a moment together.